Good afternoon and welcome to the Medical Sports Nutrition Podcast with myself, Dr. Andy Matheson. We're going to be running through five articles today and just talking about how they might change the way we manage our patients or athletes. So the first article, let's just get it up, is from PLOS One. Now this was called the Body Mass Index and All-Cause Mortality in a 21st Century U.S. Population, a National Health Interview Survey Analysis. So this was looking at BMI, and we, especially the, the nutritionists out there, are very aware of the limitations of it. And I suppose this is just a reflection, again, of, of the limitations of it. And I suppose the, the dissonance I have is, we know it's not great, but it still seems to be so popular and so focused on whether or not that's in deciding who's eligible for certain treatments, uh, for deciding uh, people if, if they want a marker for their health. Why we, we can't shake it off, we don't know. But this was, this was nice. So this was nine-year follow-up of just over half a million people. 70% white, mixer, mixture of younger and older adults. And just looking at what point, um, at what BMI, they started to notice uh, an increase in mortality. The average age was, was 46 years, and it was a sort of pretty good split of male-female. And what they found was that for younger adults, the, they start to see an increase only above BMIs of 27. But for older adults, they don't actually see a, a, any change until above 35. And to me, that's absolutely what I, I'd be expecting. Um, it, when I see older adults with high BMI, they, they tend to be split into two groups. There's some of them who are, are, are overweight. And there's some of them who are actually re retaining muscle, which is what you want when sarcopenia kicks in. You want to retain muscle. It's, it's fantastic for kind of prevention of falls. And we know that muscle mass is almost, and grip strength is almost directly linked to likelihood of falls and mortality. So, of course, it's not BMI on its own is not going to work. Um, and this is just further evidence for that. It's also kind of floats back to this thing we've talked about before about how just fat on its own even even if you were to say that bmi was as useful as calipers or dexa or even just a just a waist circumference um it would be back to that idea of actually it's where your fat is that's important um and we we've previously discussed the articles talking about how if it's around your bum actually you, you do pretty well and, and there's no difference and even uh, you do better than slightly lower weight adults who, who have it all around their liver and heart, which again makes sense. Fat's not necessarily bad for you, it's just when it's fat's layered around your, your liver and pancreas and giving you diabetes, then, then it's really bad for you. So a uh, nice article and not going to change anything I do, but if uh, it's always useful to have in your pocket a list of articles when people bring up BMI that you can use to either reassure them or point them in the right direction with a bit of, bit of evidence to back you up. So the next article, this was from the Burke Group um, in Australia. They've, they've done 
they do a steady stream of really interesting articles coming out looking at the difference between high carbohydrate and low carbohydrate mostly in interventions on a, a group of elite race walkers that, that they work with and i've talked about how i don't necessarily always agree with with their conclusions but the, the work they do is really interesting and here it was a really impressive team so it was burke and costa together uh, and they were looking at the sort of gi changes with three different diets low energy availability low carbohydrate high fat and then high carbohydrate on race walkers um, and looking at blood markers of GI problems and then symptoms. Now, if someone was to suggest this to me initially, what would I say? I'd actually expect, and I think most of us would be expecting it probably to be relatively similar between the carbohydrate and low carbohydrate and probably less in the low energy availability. And, and maybe expecting that actually the, the high carbohydrate, those gels before you before you do your walk would, would be even cause even more problems. And in, in what what was what I think I will take away from this, not what the authors really focused on, is actually there was no difference in symptoms in any of the groups. Um, and it, it was pretty well done. Um, so it was a twenty five kilometer race walk, um, and uh, they did a baseline test, and then they did one after adaptation. Uh, they sort of the numbers weren't high; they never are in these things. Uh, sort of eight and ten um, in the, in the different groups, um, and they sort of collect blood samples collected then, and then an hour post exercise. So they focused on the fact that there was a slight increase in the sort of markers of GI irritation in the low carbohydrate, high fat group. And that's useful to know. How would it change how I work? The only thing I can think of is I would be... I, we know there's a link between these... Because there was no difference in symptoms. So, again, whatever the athlete wants. Uh, it, essentially, with with these things, if your athlete needs to be reassured and wants and finds something works, there's, it's almost you could find whatever you wanted in the data to tell them that what they're doing is right and give them a bit of confidence. Uh, there's liars, damn liars, and statisticians. You can you could you can pick and choose. If I was working with people that had quite a high risk of heat, then would this GI change make me think twice about recommending low carbohydrate for, uh, for people doing race walk type work uh, in high heat illness risk environments? It might do because we know that there is probably a link there. Um, and, and certainly, I know the sort of Neil Walsh group are looking into things like this. It'll be interesting to see how how that works out. And, and I don't think I couldn't find any mention of it in this article, but but that that was really what what sort of caught my interest. Their argument was that there's GI perturbations in the low carbohydrate, so we should stop recommending it, which is which is normally the thing that the uh, sort of Louise Burke group tend to focus on. Um, which uh, so no, no surprise what they took away from it. So like many of their articles, fascinating, well done, brings up loads of interesting questions, but uh, I probably wouldn't quite focus on the uh, conclusions that they felt were most important. Right, so the next article was similar to one which I'd been really impressed with a few weeks ago. Now that one had, had looked at um, sweeteners and the sweeteners in different supplements and whether or not they were labelled and whether or not the 
uh, it was possible to calculate the energy availability and the calories from those sweeteners from the packet. And essentially, you couldn't. Uh, people just added in sweeteners willy-nilly. There was very little link between what was on the packet. And it, we thought, well, that's a real challenge for people trying to work out their energy availability or trying to restrict their sweetener use, which is something I, I bang on a lot. Um, we've talked before about why why that is. So this was in... JAMA Network Open, and it was a research letter for the complementary and alternative medicine side. Uh, and first officer Cohen, last officer Iklas Khan, it was presence and quantity of botanical ingredients with purported performance-enhancing properties in sports supplements. And, and a really nice article again. So what they were talking about was uh, looking back at the history of uh, botanical supplements and the dangers of them um, and they, they started with a, a bit of a uh, back to the, the herb ephedra which caused a, a heat stroke death back in 20, uh, 2007 possibly um, and I had to, had to remind myself to find a nice little Harvard Health Publishing summary on it just to remind myself about all of it um, and what they what their focus was actually how how sure can we be in sports supplements that there aren't botanical ingredients that we don't want to be there or that might put us at higher risk of similar things to what their Fedra caused uh, uh, with the with the heat stroke death, um, and they have a, a list of in ingredients there that they focus on. Um, and the it's not surprising what their findings are, but it is worrying. So 23 out of 57 didn't contain the label ingredients. The amount that it contained could vary between 0.02% to 334% of the actual quantity that was claimed on the packet. 7 out of the 57 had an FDA prohibited ingredient in it that wasn't mentioned on the on the back of the label and the most impressively one out of 57 had four prohibited ingredients in it that weren't mentioned on the back of the packet um yeah almost what you would expect in, in the, that's when we talk about athletes you need to be really careful about what could be in there this is this is a really great article for pointing the direction i'm not worrying too much i'm not being excessive look when things have actually been checked again and again this is what we see there are things in there that actually put you at risk of death there are things in there that put you at risk of being banned from your sport is the benefit you get from this choice of supplement compared to one that's informed sport and we know is, is okay, worth it? Um, and the athlete may still argue that, that, that they need that one, but I think it's, it's, re it's a really nice one to probably have just on the, the desk of the waiting room to, to, to just reiterate um, how concerning we, we find this. Moving on to the next article, this was an RCT. It was called, it was an Annals of Internal Medicine. It was time-restricted eating without calorie counting for weight loss in a racially diverse population. So less, uh, less focused on performance, but and this was just time-restricted eating against calorie restriction. And it was, it was nice because it was a very diverse, uh, a mixed population group, which, which sometimes we don't see. It's often very predominantly uh, white uh, Western populations that we tend to see coming through. And it was looking at an eight-hour time-restricted eating against 25% energy restriction. And 
the conclusion they came to was that time-restricted eating is more effective in producing weight loss compared with control, but not more effective than calorie restriction, i.e. calorie restriction was probably more effective. Um, actually, looking into the data, the, the adherence was better in the time-restricted, um, which I'd expect, because that's quite a 25% of so pretty tough calorie restriction. Um, there was a better drop in BP in calorie restriction, which, uh, again, if... Not what I'd expected, but if my patients wanted to ask about what what they can do to drop their blood pressure, that's that's actually an interesting one for me, and probably will make me uh, slip slip that into my my discussion points. Um, but essentially, coming back to and this is always the same: they're all just tools in a toolbox, um, and it depends what works best for your patient. Um, and, and again, more and more of these come out. Um, so I can say to someone now, over a year, actually, this, regardless of the um, patient in front of me, I'm becoming more and more confident saying, if you want to do calorie restriction, do calorie restriction. If you want to time restrict, time restrict. Here are the benefits of one. Here are the benefits of the other. There isn't that much of a difference. It depends what works with you, your lifestyle, your sport. Um, and can you can you work your sport around time restricted eating? If you're someone that does a lot of long low intensity exercise, you can. It's fantastic. But if you calorie restrict by twenty five percent, you're probably going to end up um, in low energy availability and picking up repeated illnesses and injuries. However, different sports that's going to be completely different. Um, so won't change what I do, but just gives me again more confidence in what I'm advising people. So the, the final articles, the, the sort of cherry here, this was something that I've been kind of reading through uh, over the last month or so, and it's the use of non-sugar sweeteners WHO guideline. Now, this is a fantastic document, and I would recommend it to everyone to have a look through. Uh, it, obviously, lots of, lots of in the press about it, lots of toing and froing over it. I found it it was a very, very measured document. It essentially summarises that for acute weight loss, yes, that non-sugar sweeteners may be quite effective for many people. However, there is a growing body of evidence from cohort studies, which aren't perfect, showing that actually non-sugar sweeteners are more likely to cause cardiovascular effects, stroke, etc. in the long term. So now... When I'm talking to my patients, what am I going to say to them? I'm going to say, you have to make the decision. You can absolutely use non-sugar sweeteners rather than other options. It is a tool in your toolbox, but it's not a risk-free tool. Um, and it may lead to increased stroke down the line. Now, if you, there is no way you can lose the weight and you are someone whose weight is in a really risky area all around your liver and your heart, is it worth it? You can decide. You can decide. There's no good evidence, but there's uh, which way to decide. But I can tell you, WHO are worried long term that it won't go well. Now, um, pages that I found particularly useful, I'd recommend uh, page 10 um, for sort of non-sugar sweeteners and mortality data, uh, page 14 and 15 page 15 for the list of papers to read if you've got a, a bit of time on your hands, uh, page 14 talking through the kind of the, the, the links and why it might be there. Um, so so I, I recommend to everyone having a have a look through it. Um, and then 
in what I, I've been doing and uh, is then try and walk into any health shop and see if you can find any food supplement that doesn't seem to have a load of non-sugar sweeteners in it any protein shake they're all just full of them and it's driving me nuts i'm sure at some point it's going to change but it, it, it certainly hasn't at the moment um the for the sort of balance i suppose the uh i always enjoy going on the international sweeteners association website for uh if you want the probably the most extreme view of sweeteners and their benefit to the world obviously they um their entire their jobs and paying their mortgage depend on on uh uh keeping sweeteners uh, is something pretty key um and it's one of these websites that sort of paints itself as is very much as a sort of science science website um clearly it's not um and the reason i sort of like to read it is just to see actually maybe they'll come up with a, an argument that i've missed um they'll point out a kind of a key flaw in one of these trials that i haven't picked up or hasn't been declared or isn't pretty obvious just from reading it um actually uh, they missed they didn't they didn't uh, allow for smoking in it or something like that but no um you know i was quite reassured to see nothing actually on there that, that would make that clearly they're very against it um their their role is that the answer to the global obesity crisis is is, is low calorie sweeteners um but there's nothing in there to say that actually the data's not good they talk about the fact it's not been uh doesn't reflect what's in many government agencies and government body recommendations but we know most government agencies and government body recommendations um, are reflections of the power of lobbying groups, not really based on science. But there's nothing in their rebuttal about where the science is wrong. So uh, I thought that was really interesting. Um, so, and again, always useful to try and see if, if, the, if the people who have the, the strongest interest in pushing back against this sort of thing can come up with, with something that actually really does make you stop and think, ah, that's a decent point, but but nothing there, nothing there when we read it. Well, that's it for me today. I hope you have a fantastic week, uh, get plenty of exercise, and I'll catch up with you soon.